Hello everybody, time for episode 31 of the Age Unsquared podcast, beaming to you from deep within that prairie land of Canada. I'm your host, Adrian Harsimiu, but all of my friends, and that includes you on this journey, call me Age. Welcome back to another leg of our Unsquared journey, one of unconventional thinking and learning on a quest to a balanced and fulfilling life held up with our own form of financial independence. Gone are the days of boring predictability fueled by mainstream thinking. It's time for the next renaissance. It's time for the unsquared age. My friends, in this episode, I will continue the discussion on the five C's of lending, taking a look at second random C, and then we'll switch gears and evaluate a bad news is good news story in the world of investing. But let's kick off this episode with another glimpse inside the age brain. Remember, to get the best lowdown on your host, be sure to listen to the episode that started it all, episode zero. But back to today's episode, where I want to reveal another name on my list of people that I want to be when I grow up. I started this list on episode 22, when I named Jim Rogers as one of my professional mentors. Like Mr. Rogers, and that's Jim Rogers, not the friendly neighbor, today's entry to my list is also someone I do not know personally. I have met him once in person for a brief couple of moments and have listened to him speak in person on a couple of occasions. Otherwise, I have no personal contact with him. So, here's yet another situation similar to an aspiring professional hockey player who has minimal contact with his playing idol. Of course, I'm not saying any of these people are idols. They are more people I like to follow and learn from. So, without further ado, I introduce you to Peter Schiff. It's likely you've heard me drop his name either on this podcast or in my other social media posts, but it's time to learn more about the man behind the name. Just like with Jim Rogers, I'll start off with one sentence to sum him all up. Peter Schiff is an American businessman, financial commentator, stockbroker, author, and media personality, originally from Connecticut, but now based out of Puerto Rico. Of course, I'm not going to stop there. His professional career began after graduating from Haas School of Business of UC Berkeley with a double major in accounting and finance. Soon thereafter, he began his career as a stockbroker at Shearson Lehman Brothers. During his stint as a stockbroker, it's reported that he was bothered by his boss's attitudes towards clients. He felt that his bosses were more interested in earning big commissions or pushing the next hot stock rather than truly making real money for their clients. Hmm, do you think that resonates with yours truly? In 1996, he and a partner acquired an inactive brokerage firm, renamed it Euro-Pacific Capital, and he's operated it ever since. Over the last decade, he has also founded and continues to operate Euro-Pacific Bank, Euro-Pacific Asset Management, as well as Schiff Gold, a precious metals dealer formerly named Euro-Pacific Precious Metals. As you can tell, Peter is heavily ingrained in all things financial. As a result, he is known for providing great, and yes, sometimes controversial, financial commentary. And as I can attest firsthand, he's a great public speaker, always delivering his speeches and lectures with absolutely no notes in front of him. One would think he's easily distracted from the main message of his talk, but such is never the case. He's also known for providing wonderful metaphors to get his point across. One such metaphor that I recall, he made many years ago on a YouTube video, at a time when the markets were struggling. 
And so he started comparing the price changes of everyday items to the price changes of the S&P 500. The exact quote I don't have in front of me and I don't recall it, but he said something along the lines of the price of cotton rising more than the stock market, which means that, and this I can quote, your jockey shorts outperformed the S&P 500. This is classic Peter. He's also known for not being afraid to make forecasts and comments that are outside of the Wall Street narrative. His detractors, of course, will point to some of his forecasts which have not yet come true. But I'm left to wonder if there are any forecasters out there that have actually batted a perfect 1,000. His most famous forecast, though few have the guts to give him credit for it, was his prediction that the real estate bubble would burst in the U.S. Now, he's been criticized for calling the burst to occur in 2007. Oh no, he was early one year. The fact is, he was correct. Yet again, few want to give him props for it, and they still continue to believe his predictions to be off-kilter. As if this isn't enough to keep him busy, he has written six books, one of which topped both the New York Times and Wall Street Journal's bestsellers lists. And to top it all off, he's not a single man, he's married with two sons. My reasons for following him are too many to detail here but his drive to leave both a personal and a professional legacy are nothing short of impressive, regardless of what you may think about his views. Of course, if my views were completely incongruent with his, I naturally would not be following him. So yes, I continue to learn many fascinating ideas and insights about the markets and economics from him. And of course, his willingness to go against the Wall Street tidal wave scores points with me as well. He's a man that continues to show that if you're willing to hustle and stick to your laurels, even when others laugh at you, and believe me, people have laughed at him on TV, you can still make something great of yourself. And now, with all of this information bubbling in your head, time to turn to topics that will truly make an impact on your journey. Before continuing from the last episode and tackling the second C of lending, a quick summary of the first C, capacity. This is the C with all of the income confirmation requirements, so that the lender can calculate two important ratios about you, GDSR and TDSR. Confused? That can only mean one thing, and that's that you've been busted for not listening to episode 30. So my friends, here's a challenge for you. After this episode is through, your homework is to listen to episode 30. What a big challenge, I know, but make sure you don't miss that episode. Also, before revealing the basic secrets behind C-door number two, I'm excited to share with you that I'm working on bringing one of my great mortgage brokers for an interview so that he can share with you great insights and tips on the lending process. Stay tuned for that this summer. It'll be our journey's first guest expert guide. Okay, now on to the second C, which, again, sorry to you cookie monsters out there, but this C also is not for cookie. Rather, it's for capital. And remember, we're looking at these C's from a personal lending perspective, not a business one. Capital can be a few different things in a lending application depending on the type. When it comes to mortgages, lenders will scrutinize your down payment, firstly to make sure you have enough with at least 5% down. But they also look at where and how you saved your down payment, mainly because they don't want there to be another loan you owe on top of your mortgage. In other words, they don't want you to be 100% leveraged on the property. If you've been saving up for the down payment in a separate account, they'll want to see three months of most recent statements to confirm that it was a buildup of cash available and not just a lump sum dumped into your account, which could signal a warning to them. 
If a family member is giving you money for your down payment, which results in the, in the lump sum deposit, lenders just want confirmation that it truly is a gift and not a loan that your family expects the money to be paid back. Or maybe you're selling your current home and will be using the proceeds as a down payment. That's just fine. You just need to prove that your home is up for sale. In such a case, you'll get a conditional approval, meaning you'll get the mortgage as long as your current home has been sold. Of course, there's also bridge financing, but that's a different topic. Also remember that when it comes to a mortgage, lenders like to see commitment. This means going in with as much of a down payment as you can possibly afford. Yes, they'll still lend to you at a 5% down payment, but they're in a much more secure position when you've put down, say, 20% of your own money and are more likely to spot you the difference. This, of course, does not take into consideration any of CMHC insurance, which is required up to down payments of 20%, but that's not part of the discussion on the five C's. In a loan application, so this could be a line of credit or just a normal loan, capital can also take another factor into consideration, and this is how much savings or investments you have in general, especially liquid investments. If the lender sees that you have RSPs or TFSAs or non-register investments that they can pursue in situations of loan default, this may support your application for approval even further. Of course, as with NEC, this depends on the lender. Each lender views savings and investments differently. Some may not care that you have any because they just don't want the hassle of pursuing you to use for payment of your debt. But generally speaking, it doesn't hurt to have savings and investments cushioning your debt. For example, if you're borrowing $10,000 to, well, I don't know, go on some vacation, but you've got $100,000 in your RSP, most lenders won't worry about spotting you the money because they know there's some cushion there for them to try to recuperate on default. Sure, this spontaneous example seems crude and crazy. Why would you borrow money to go on a vacation when you're able to save for it? But it just goes to illustrate the power of having your own funds available, lurking in the background as you go to borrow funds for your needs. Capital may not seem like a big DLC, but don't let its importance fool you. The size of your down payment could make or break your deal, while no down payment will of course definitely kill your deal. And a lack of savings or investments can portray you as someone who just lives for the moment and more likely not to repay the loan. As with all of the C's, this one also takes crafting properly to put your best foot forward in a credit application. Okay, moving on to the next segment. Let's bring the land of chocolate uh, I mean, uh, Wall Street back into our crosshairs. Why? Because you've guessed it, it's more hocus pocus coming at us from those corridors of magical money. So let's lay the groundwork. I was looking at the market reaction to the jobs numbers that came out in the US on Friday, June 7th. But before I even talk about that, let me just rewind and take another step back here. Let's do a general overview here. One that I think should be logical but it seems logic just doesn't seem to have much sway here in Middle Earth anymore. Okay, everyone, get your thinking caps on. What do you think should happen in the investment markets when there is a positive surprise? Trust me, my friends, you do not need to be schooled in investments to figure this out. Just think, when you're expecting a bonus of $100 and instead you get a bonus of $10,000, how do you feel? That's right, a positive surprise in the market should result in a jubilant upward movement in markets. Now, let's see how well your logic works. Instead of a positive surprise, we experience a negative one. You prepare yourself to get your $10,000 bonus, then bonus time comes, 
and nothing. You get no bonus. How are your spirits now? Yes, market sentiment works the same way. It works in all sorts of scenarios. Better than already good expectation, or better than bad expectations, or worse than high expectations, or worse than bad expectations. I'm sure you can think of many personal examples to fill each scenario. Now back to the June 7th jobs number. It's called the non-farm payrolls, which is a monthly statistic that tells us how many new jobs were created or lost at construction, manufacturing, and goods companies. As you can tell by the name, it does not include farm payrolls. Aren't you thrilled that your logic still works? Naturally, seeing many new jobs added over the previous month is normally a good thing. And yes, my friends, your logic faculties will tell you that a loss of jobs is normally a bad thing. So to tie this to the markets, if new jobs are added over the previous month, the markets are likely to react positively to the news and vice versa. With me so far? Pause and rewind if you're not. And what happened on June 7th? Well, in leading up to these numbers being released, a general consensus usually forms amongst economists about what has transpired in that time period. At this particular time, the consensus was forecasting for an increase of about 180,000 jobs. Let that number sink in for a second, 180,000 new jobs in those sectors. Instead, June 7th rolled around, and the number that was released was 75,000. Not only that, but the numbers that were released for March and April were also revised down. This means that the actual numbers that were released for those months were actually too high. So, my dear logical friends, are these all positive or negative surprises? In my book, they're all negative surprises, which would generally dictate a drop in markets. Thankfully, most of you aren't traders, and we're not tempted to rush to your trading terminals to start shorting the market. And if you don't know what I mean by shorting, you've just confessed to me once again that you have not listened to episode 30. So, be sure to giddy up to that episode once you're done listening to this leg. Yes, the statistically correct reaction would be to sell positions and take profits or to sell short assets. But, a general reminder that Wall Street is morphing into the land of chocolate, where magical elves are running the show now. Why? Because here you have the markets actually climbing higher on this disappointing news. Let me repeat that. Not one, but multiple negative surprises were unleashed on June 7th, and what did the markets do? They went up. It's like getting your $0 bonus when you were anticipating a $10,000 bonus and then going out to celebrate. How does that make any sense? Thankfully for you, I'm here to decipher this madness. And you can thank me over coffee. And listen to the end of this episode if you're not sure what I'm referring to. To get a better handle on this Harry Potter moment, you'll have to rewind a few days before the 7th, on a day, June 4th to be exact, when Fed Chairman Jerome Powell was quoting with saying, We are closely monitoring the implications of these developments for the U.S. outlook. And here he's referring to the ongoing trade disputes. And then he continues with, And as always, we will act as appropriate to sustain the expansion, with a strong labor market and inflation near our systematic 2% objective. If you haven't fallen asleep yet listening to that comment, allow me to interpret it for you. Bottom line is that the Fed is prepared to reduce interest rates in the event that the economy goes sideways. 
And there it is. When the dismal jobs numbers hit the newswire, Wall Street cheered. And here's their logic, in terms that I think anyone should be able to follow. Jobs market sucks, so economy sucks, so Fed will drop interest rates, so we have more cheap money and new money to invest in the markets to push prices up. That's right, my friends. Bad news is now good news in the land of chocolate, where 50% off chocolate is apparently an outstanding deal even as drops of chocolate rain down on you. Remember that when you wonder whose interests are actually being supported at Wall Street and the Fed and who drives the economy. But now, to turn to more rational thinking, another 20 minutes has vaporized before our eyes, which, in the land of unsquaredness, means we're at the end of this episode. Time truly flies when you're having fun and learning new things. But help me spread the word about our 20-minute weekly journey doses in just three easy steps to follow. Now just take it easy and start things off by going to www.ageonsquare.com to subscribe to this podcast. There awaits you the bliss of having first dibs on each new episode while also ensuring the podcast gods circulate our journey. Remember that the next step also involves pleasing the podcast gods and involves posting a rating and review. More listeners will join our journey when they hear the ravings of others. Finally, there's no podcast gods in this one, just pure you and your ability to directly invite others in your circle of family and friends to jump in with us. And to engage with me further in between journey legs, find me at my social media pit stops under the at the original age handle. Of course, a nice cafe latte or chai latte awaits you when you're ready to meet me in the clothed flesh. To redeem this offer for a hot beverage, simply send me a digital homing pigeon to adrian at agecorp.co. Let's discuss your own unique journey and your difficulties in achieving your own financial independence. If the powers that be line up, welcoming you into our extended financial family would be an extra dose of whipped cream with a cherry on top of our lattes. Don't delay. I wait with bated breath to hear from you. Watashi no yujin. The episode exit music is ushering me out the digital door. But thank you for joining me on this leg of our journey. I am truly thrilled to have you here and look forward to you joining us again on the next episode. If you've missed previous episodes, be sure to tune in to them as well. They're just 20 minutes that's really well spent. Until next time, stay safe, keep your integrity, and see you at the pinnacle.